You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5, that would be so helpful to have that out and open on your lap this morning. And if you are new with us today, thanks so much for being here. It's such a joy and a privilege to have you. And we're just praying that the Lord would interact with you and uh, minister to you today in some really deep and profound ways that would be helpful for you. And if you'll make sure, if this is your first time to be at Stonegate, if you take one of those black cards underneath your seat, it'll say uh, connect on it. If you'll make sure you fill that out, put that in the offering basket at the end of the service, that would help us follow up with you and serve you going forward, which we would love to do. So if you would do that for us, that would be great. And there's also a green card under your seat. If there's any way that we can pray for you, we as a church would love to do that. You can fill that card out, put that in the offering basket, and that will also put you on a prayer list where we can intercede for you. So I've asked, uh, just as we get going, uh, Guy and Jimmy to come out and join me for a few minutes. And today is one of those special days in the life of our church where we get to do an elder presentation day. And so with that said, I want to just take one step back and say a couple of things about eldership generally. And, uh, and then talk about these guys for just a second and kind of let you know where we are in the process of, uh, of installing them as elders. So eldering is a big deal. Pastoring in a church is a big deal in the scriptures. We take it very seriously because God takes it very seriously. And when it comes to the qualifications of elders, uh, Paul tells us what those are in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus. And here's the uh, passage in 1 Timothy 3. The first seven verses go like this. This will be up on the screen for you. It says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, for he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Uh, Getting elders right is one, a pastor's right, is one of the most important things a church can do. Uh, We've said this repeatedly when it comes to elders, that we would rather have no elders than the wrong ones. Uh, But better than all of that is having the right ones, right? It's having those that are called by God toward that who are qualified, who, who meet these qualifications, and who are competent to help and, and to help share the load of pastoring and leading a church. And so with that said, I want to uh, introduce Jimmy and Guy to you. So many of you know Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy, uh, there he is. Uh, Jimmy leads uh, worship for us uh, often on Sunday mornings and has just done such a great job with that. Jimmy uh, got to Stonegate about seven years ago, he and his wife Kelly. And they have been just such great gifts to our church. I mean, I want you to know that. When I think about you and your family, um, gosh, we have just received you as a wonderful gift. And a couple of years ago, Jimmy came on staff as our full-time worship director. And you have experienced over the last couple of years uh, just the, the blessing and benefit of that. And haven't we appreciated how well our guys have served us through song? <clears throat> that has been a good thing. So thank you for serving us and blessing us that way too. And, uh, and if you've been here for long, you know that Jimmy also preaches a lot. And he is one of those guys who he hit a lot of like the, uh, the branches of the giftedness tree when God made him. 
uh, and you know that like he can not only sing and like lead us in song really well, but he is equally, if not better, at opening up the Bible and um, applying it to our lives. He does such a wonderful job at that, and we have all um, benefited from that. I've benefited from sitting under you um, as you have preached. And one of the things that I'm so grateful for, it would not be an uncommon occurrence for a person who is really gifted um, with stage-oriented gifts for their, for their gifts of doing stuff like this to far outpace the grace of a formed character and solid character. And I, I just love that I can stand up here and in all honesty say um, who Jimmy is off the stage is even more commendable than what you get to experience on the stage. Um, he is a man with a formed character, which I just so appreciate about you, Jimmy. And, uh, and many of you know Guy Minix. Guy has been here for about four years, he and his wife, Julie, and they have also been just such blessings to our church. Uh, they have been just invested into the lives of people. They've been leading home groups, uh, just pouring their lives out uh, for people and for the people of Stonegate um, for years now. And we've just been able to observe that really in both of their lives, just a consistent pouring out for you, the people of, of this church family. And Guy, I remember uh, back four years ago, we're sitting at Panera Bread. This is my first conversation with you when you just opened up about your life and uh, the painful season that the Lord was walking you through. And in some ways still has you in. I mean, those things don't, we don't swallow those things easily. And, uh, and, and one of the things I discovered about Guy then and have just seen play out over the last four years of getting to know him is that Guy is a steady, stable, respectable man. Um, when I think about um, Isaiah, Isaiah talks about uh, us becoming oaks of righteousness, just strong, sturdy, stable in our character and in our development with Jesus. And when I think about Guy, um, that's the sort of person that I think about. And I would say this about both of them. I think if you get to hang around them, you're going to finish time with them loving Jesus more than when you started. And that's a good thing, isn't it, that we can say that about um, these guys? So as our elders, uh, we have spent time with these men over the last year. We have been about the work of just training and equipping and walking beside. And we are to the point of being able to stand before you and say, we think they are called uh, by Jesus. Um, we have watched the Lord just put on them the, that sort of a mantle that a human being doesn't do, that God does within a group of people for uh, pastors. And we have watched that happen. Um, we believe that they're qualified according to 1 Timothy 3. And, and we feel like they're competent to really be a great help to us as we're trying to pastor and serve you, this precious church family. We feel like that. And so in light of that, we're to the point of wanting to take the next step and formalize uh, that. And so uh, part of what today is, as we present like elder candidates to you, in a lot of ways, it's now inviting you into the process. We've done a lot of our hard work, and now we want to invite you in to do some hard work with that as well. You have a role to play in the development of elders and the installation of elders. And let me tell you why I think that's important for you as a church family to take seriously. Uh, part of what it means to be a covenant member at a church is you are saying in that moment, I'm going to submit my life to the authority, namely the, the elders at that church family. I'm going to submit my life to them. I'm going to live under their authority. Um, I'm going to make it a joy uh, for them to pastor. So there's a lot on the line for you. You should take that seriously because these are men that you would be saying, I'm going to submit to their, to their leadership in our church family. So with that said, here's where we are in the process. We have done our hard work, testing, equipping, all that, and we believe that they are called, qualified, competent, and will be wonderful pastors in our church family. And now we want you in on that uh, to play your role in that. Uh, so before we would install them as elders, we want to present them to you. 
And this is kind of the, the, the way that we oftentimes say it. If you know something we don't know that would keep them from being an elder, this is your chance to let us know that. Like, we want to invite you in to have a voice in to this moment of us installing these men. So uh, barring something, you know, of us discovering something from you that we don't know at this point, um, we would, in about 30 days from now, go, ahead, go ahead and install them as elders. So this is kind of that 30-day period, roughly 30 days, where we're just inviting you, if you don't know them, this would be a good time to get to know them and uh, to figure out who, who these guys are if you, if you don't know them well. So with that said, I would love to pray for Jimmy and Guy and for you as a church. So, Father, I thank you for these two men. I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for how we have been able to observe over a long period of time uh, their faithfulness to you and their faithfulness to this church family and their fruitfulness as they have ministered to the people of this church, as they've poured out their life to the people of this church. So, Father, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would give them a long runway, many, many years of faithful and fruitful service to you in this particular church body. And Father, I pray for us as a church that you would give us the wisdom and discernment and all of those sort of things that we need. So Father, we want to install the right people, the people you have called to be elders in this particular church. And so, um, Father, would you give us all the wisdom and discernment on that? And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. God, Jimmy, thank you. You betcha. You betcha. Okay, we are to Matthew chapter 5. So it would be really good to have that out where you can see that and follow along this morning. And we're taking uh, the next step in our set of sermons that we've just called Valleys Fill First. We're just working down through the Beatitudes and eventually the whole Sermon on the Mount that starts in Matthew chapter 5. And today we're to verse 6. And verse 6 says this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst For righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. He says it like this in the message. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. Because he's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. So that's what we're going to consider. Matthew 5 Verse 6 this morning. And it's going to come in two parts. Part 1 is encouragement. Part 2 is promise. Part 1 is encouragement. Part 2 is promise. So we'll start with the first half, the encouragement. It's the first half of Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the encouragement that Jesus gives. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So let's just start by making a few observations of this text. In that word blessed, Jesus is showing us the way to human flourishing. He is showing us what it looks like, the the road leading to to human happiness. Like if you want to be happy, if you want to flourish as a human being, that word blessed is Jesus saying, it's down that road. This This is the way to that sort of human flourishing and the happiness that your soul longs for. That's the way to it. But but notice in verse six, in the fourth beatitude, that when Jesus points to the road that leads to human flourishing, that that leads to happiness for a human being. He doesn't address us on the level of our doing. He addresses us on the level of our desires. I want you to notice that. That, that Matthew 5, verse 6, has nothing that we're actively doing. Everything in chapter or in verse 6 is about our desiring. 
Like when Jesus essentially, and this is pulling back the arrow of our life, and he's showing us, here's what you aim for in your life. That this is the purpose of your life. This is what I want in your life. This is the way to human happiness. And when he pulls back the arrow and he shows us the bullseye and he says, shoot your life at this, just notice that it's, it's not action-oriented. He's not saying, now go do all these things. It's affection-oriented. He's concerned here about our appetites, our desires, our, our affections. Now, why is that? Why is he addressing us on the level of desire? I, I think it's because Jesus knows that in a lot of ways, our desires are the winds in our life that push us toward all of our doing. So, so back behind all of the things that you do in life, back behind all of those things, if you get down below them, what you're going to find is your desires, your affections, your wants, your yearnings. Those are the things that, that come out in your doing. They, they motivate your doing. They shape your doing. So it's desires down here that then fuel and, and lead to all of the doing in our life. And Jesus knows that. He knows how we're wired and how, how we're shaped. Jesus knows that if our desires are right, then our duties will be right. Our doing will be right. He knows that. So rather than focusing on our doing, he says, no, I want to go all the way down into the heart of what it is that you desire, what it is that you long for and are yearning for. Uh, John Stott commenting on this verse, he says it this way. There is perhaps no greater secret of, uh, of progress. There's perhaps no greater secret of progress in Christian living than a healthy, hearty, spiritual appetite. And Jesus knows that. And this is what he's addressing. He's addressing us all the way down there at the level of, of appetite. Because he knows there's nothing more important in your life than a healthy, hearty appetite. Now, notice the words that he uses here. He says hunger and thirst. Those are the, the metaphors he's using for the sort of appetite that he wants. Now, think about the, the desires of hungering and thirsting. Those are primal sort of impulses, right? Those are baseline sort of desires. They are the sort of desires that they come first in your life. So think about all the things that you desire. You may desire to, to become good at an instrument. Like you might say, I want to become really great at playing the piano or playing the guitar, or playing fill in the blank. You might be saying right now, I want to become really great at playing a sport. Like I want to do that. I'm, I'm yearning for that. Um, so so you, you want to become great at football or soccer, whatever your, your sport is. Or, or maybe you're saying, I want to become really, really great um, academically. Or I want to become really, really great in my job. I, I want to be great at what I do, right? All of those sort of desires come second to, to this desire, to hunger and thirsting. Like, if you're dying of dehydration, every other desire in your life is on hold until that one's satisfied. It is a baseline desire. It's like... In the face of that necessity, everything in life, every other desire in life is a luxury, right? It's that sort of deep yearning, desperate learning, uh, yearning, intense desiring that Jesus is after here. He's saying it's a desiring for righteousness like that with that sort of intensity. And we see this sort of thing in the scripture, Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. I, I, am, I am dying of dehydration. That's the way I yearn for you, God. My soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. Psalm 73, verses, uh, verse 25. The psalmist says, God, whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there's nothing on earth I desire beside you. It's that deep, desperate yearning that we see in the scriptures. And can we just take a moment to lament? To lament how, how abnormal that sort of yearning is in our culture? We live in a lot of ways in, in, a, in a cultural sea of self-satisfied halfway Christians. Just, just half-hearted in their, in their want of God. And Jesus here is saying, no, no, that's not Christianity at all. Christianity is not a half-hearted want of God. It is a wide-open, wholehearted hunger, an insatiable appetite for God. That's Christianity. This is, the sort of, this is sort of the life with Jesus that leads to human flourishing and happiness. It's that deep yearning for more of God. Now look again at those words, hunger and thirst. Those are in the present tense in the Greek, which means that it's not a one-time action in our life, but it's a continuous action. In other words, it's not like an odd thing. Like we're just surprised when something like that shows up in our life with, with Jesus. It's not an odd thing. It's not an abnormal thing. It's not just for a, a, a few of those really serious type of Christians. This is run-of-the-mill, off-the-shelf, standard brand Christianity. It's like what normal life with God looks like. This sort of wholehearted hunger for God. It should characterize the life of every Christian. Like all of our lives with God, it should just characterize and be the mark that is stamped onto our life with God. Just think for a moment back over your life. I don't know how long you've been walking with the Lord, but just think back over your life with, with the Lord. And, and think about those moments where there has been just that insatiable desire. I mean, your heart was just, I mean, it was ablaze for the things of God. P part of what Jesus is saying here is, D don't let those moments just be a past tense thing. He's saying, pray and plead with the Lord and cultivate your desires so that every decade, as they build onto your life with God, every decade, it would be deeper in desire. That your, your yearnings and your want of God would grow and grow and grow so that this decade of your life would be the decade of the deepest desires in your life. Your heart most wide open to God, hungering and thirsting after God. And then look at that, th th those words, for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is a big biblical word. So it, it, is, it is huge, and it can mean different things depending on the context that you find it in. And here's generally the two ways the Bible uses that word righteousness. One way is to refer to what you might call positional righteousness. This is the righteousness that we don't earn. Your good works can't get it. It can only be had by, by trusting and putting your faith in the work that Jesus has done for you. His perfect life in your place. His death on the cross where all of God's wrath for our sin came crashing down on him. And his resurrection from the dead where God showed his power over Satan, sin, and death. It's not our righteousness. It's a righteousness that we receive by faith from Jesus. That's positional righteousness. It's what makes us right with God. It's what allows us to be adopted into the family of God and to be a son or daughter of God, for God to be our God and for us to be his people. That's positional righteousness. Now, another way the Bible speaks of righteousness is what you might call practical righteousness. 
And, and practical righteousness, that's when who we are in Jesus begins to work its way out and into our life as we live for Jesus. So, so it's who we are, that positional righteousness that we have, beginning to now conform our life around Jesus so that more and more we are practically looking more like Jesus. That, that's practical righteousness. Now, this passage and the way Jesus is using that word righteousness leans in that second direction. It's, it's practical righteousness. He's saying that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for more of God. Like Paul, it's, it's, it's saying, God, I want to know you in the power of the resurrection. I Like every sin in my life, I want to see it killed because it's keeping me from knowing more of you. God, I want you. I want to be conformed into the image of Jesus. I want to look more like my big brother, Jesus. God, God I want more. I'm yearning for more. It's that practical righteousness. God, I want more of you. So, so let me just ask you the question this morning. You walked in today and, and ask yourself this question. You just fill in the blank. More than anything else in the world, I want, what is it? What is it? More than anything else in the world, I want this. Here is how you know the grace of God is at work in your soul. When you can fill that blank in by saying, the thing I want more than anything else in the universe is more of Jesus. I want more of him. That, that's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, why don't we? Why, why is it that many of us just aren't hungering and thirsting for God like we would like to? Like, Hungering and thirsting just seems to be void in our life. So sporadic in our life. Why is that? Let me work through a couple of reasons. One reason might be because we're dead. That that could be a reason. Now, think about dead people. Dead people don't desire. Dead people aren't worried about, I wonder where my next meal's coming from. That's not the way a dead person operates. Now, Ephesians 2 tells us that when we come out of the womb, we are born spiritually dead. And spiritually dead people don't desire God. They don't yearn for God. They don't have an, they don't have an appetite for God. There's nothing in them saying, give me more of Jesus. Spiritually dead people don't think about God that way. That there's no appetite for God in spiritually dead people. Now, when Jesus ends this sermon that we're in, Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Toward the end of this sermon, he says some of the most terrifying words in the scriptures. You find them right at the end of Matthew chapter 7. You can flip a couple of pages over and see them if you'd like. In verses 21 through 23, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Now, prophesying in the name of Jesus is a great thing in the Bible. That, that, that's a win. That's a, that's a good thing that, that is being done. right? Did, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? Casting out demons is a great thing. right? That, that's, a, that's a win in the Bible. That, that's, a, that's a great thing to do. Did, did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Doing many mighty works is a great thing, 
Right? We would all like to do more of that. It's a, it's a good thing. But listen to what Jesus says to them in the end, verse 23. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, there's a lot of things to learn from that passage, but this is one of the main ones. One thing that we learn from Matthew 7 is that what you do and what I do is not the most reliable test for the authenticity of our faith in Jesus. It's not. You can do a lot of great things just like that and not be a Christian, right? On the other hand, what this passage is showing us, combine it with the Beatitudes now, is that the most reliable test for our authenticity, for just the authenticity of our faith, is not in our doing, but in our desiring. Like, do we, do we want God? I, when, when Jesus saves a person, when he takes a person, Ephesians 2, they're dead in their sin, and now they are made alive with, with God. When he makes us alive, when he rescues us, when he brings our heart to life, here's what a living heart does. It looks at God for the first time and is like, yes to God. There's, there's the creation of new appetites in us, new desires in us, new yearnings in us, new wants in us. That's what it means to be a Christian. When, when people ask me, what is a Christian? I'll oftentimes just quote Psalm 42.1. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after God. It is a person who wants Jesus. That's what a Christian is. So it, it gives us a chance to think about this. This, this beatitude gives us an opportunity to test ourselves. To not assume that, that we hunger and thirst after righteousness, but to ask the question, do we? Do we? Do, do I desire more of God? Do I want Jesus? Now, let me clarify. There is no one in this room who perfectly desires God. I feel like I'm preaching from such a place of brokenness with this this morning. I am just personally praying, God. I, I want to want you so much more than I do right now. So God, help me. None of us perfectly desire God. But this beatitude is, is inviting us to look at our life, the panoramic picture of our life, and to ask the question, is there evidence in, in our walk with God that we love God, like we want God? Is there evidence of that? And if there's not, it might be that we are dead and not yet alive in Jesus. And here's the great news. If we're outside of Jesus this morning, if we're outside of Jesus, we're in such a great position today because God is looking at all of us and saying, if you want me, if you're hungering and you're thirsting, I will stand here with arms wide open, ready to rescue you and satisfy you. So if that's you today, I mean, just God's arms are wide open, ready to receive you and satisfy your soul. He's ready to do that for you today. So, so one reason might be that we're dead in our sin. We're dead. But another reason um, is, is not that we're dead. Another reason is that we're sick, that, that we're sick. If you've ever been sick before, you know that one of the things that oftentimes comes right along with sickness is just a loss of appetite. Our, our appetite withers. A, a, a good steak when we're really sick it's just no longer satisfying. We can't even eat the thing. Like normally it would be so incredibly good, but we can't eat it when we're sick. But part of being sick oftentimes is that our appetites just wither around it. And the same goes spiritually. When we're spiritually sick, 
what oftentimes happens is our desire for Jesus begins to, to wither and shrivel up. Do you remember the church in, in Laodicea? This is Revelation chapter 3. Jesus comes to that church and he, and he tells the church what he sees. And this is what he sees in Revelation chapter 3. You find it in verse 15. He says, I know your works, that you are neither hot or cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Like, I wish that you were one. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Man, what, what sobering words. Now, now, what is Jesus seeing in this particular church? He's looking at a church, and, and what he is observing is there is no zeal for God in that church. Like, zeal for God is gone in that church. It's not there. In, in that, there's no appetite for God. There's no desire. There's no yearning. Everything luke, is lukewarm. Everything's just kind of descended into complacency. There's no passion, no, no wanting. And Jesus says, that actually stimulates the, the gag reflex in me. Now, now, why is that? It's because complacent Christianity will kill you. Like ho-hum worldliness, it will rob from you. And Jesus is saying, no, don't, don't go there. Don't let that, that your, your desires and that appetite in you for more of God, don't let that wither and fade. But, but this is what he's observing in the church in Laodicea. But then verse 17 answers the question, what has deflated their appetite? Like, like what is the spiritual sickness that, is, that has overtaken the church to rob that church of its passion for Jesus? It's want of more of Jesus. What is that? Verse 17 answers it. Here's, here's what's deflated their yearnings and appetite for God. Jesus looks at them and says, here's your problem, church in Laodicea. For you say... I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. I mean, I'm just, when I look in the mirror, you, you're just looking at yourself and, and you're thinking, man, I look good. That's what Jesus is saying about him. But, but then look at what he goes on to say, to say. He says, this is how you see yourself. I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that this is the real picture, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The church's disease, their sickness, is their own self-righteousness. That there's no poverty of spirit in the church. There's no mourning over sin in the church. They're just like the Pharisee in the temple. Do you remember him when he's looking down upon the tax collector in Luke? He's looking down at the tax collector thinking like this. He's praying to God, and this is what he's praying. God, thank you that I'm not like that idiot. Thank you I'm not like him, that tax collector. Just self-righteousness rampant in his heart. And this is what's happened in the church in Laodicea. And this is what self-righteousness, this is what being rich in spirit rather than poor in spirit will do to you. Self-righteousness will take a man who's starving to death and convince him that he's full. That's what self-righteousness does. It robs us of our appetite. So, so maybe our lack of hunger is that we're dead. We're just spiritually dead. Maybe it's that we're spiritually sick. Self-righteousness, that, that richness in spirit is robbing us of our appetite. Or maybe it's because that we're stuffed. Not that we're sick. We're just, we're just stuffed with things from, from the world. Thomas Watson, the Puritan pastor, he said it this way. You never knew a man 
who glutted himself upon the world and at the same time was greatly in love with Jesus. You've never met, you've never met that man. That man doesn't exist, he's saying. You've never known a man who glutted himself upon the world and at the same time was greatly in love with Jesus. Hebrews 12, I, I love the, the opening of that chapter. Um, the, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to run with endurance the race that Jesus has marked out for us. As we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So, so he's encouraging us, run the race that God has for you. But, but in that chapter, he begins by telling us a few of the things that need to happen in our life if we're actually going to run the race well. So one thing he says, if we're going to run well, he says you need to lay aside the sin that clings so closely. I, it's really hard to run if we're in the handcuffs of sin, right? Like handcuffs make it really hard to like, get a good stride going, really, really hard to run. And that makes sense probably to most of us. Like it, it's hard to run well this race that Jesus has marked out for us if we're stuffing our souls with things that run directly contrary to the will and ways of God, Right? So, so you, you've got to lay aside the sin which clings so closely. But that's not the only thing he says we're going to need to do if we're going to run this race well. The second thing he says we need to do is to lay aside every weight. Not, not just the sin that clings so closely, but the weights in our life. So what are weights? Weights are morally neutral things. They're, they're not sinful things. Oftentimes they're even good things. But weights are morally neutral things that just have a way of diminishing our desires for Jesus. That's what a weight is. And if we're ever going to, to stir our appetites and affections for Jesus, we have to, to lay aside those weights. Now, I oftentimes think that we just ask the wrong question when it comes to should we do that or should we not do it? Here's the line of questions most of us use to kind of determine should we or shouldn't we. The line of question goes something like this. Well, is it sinful or is it not? If it's not sinful, I'm going to do it. If it is sinful, then I'll try not to do it, right? This is the line of questions. The, the problem with that line of question, uh, questioning is that it's assuming that the goal of the Christian life is to avoid sin. That's not the goal of the Christian life. The, the goal of the Christian life is not for you to avoid sin. It's for you to fully enjoy Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life. So rather than asking the question of, the, the wrong set of questions of, man, is it right, is it wrong, is it sinful or not, that, that whole line of questions, the, the better question to ask is this. Does this, whatever this is, deepen my desires for Jesus? D does it stir and stoke my, my yearnings and appetite and affection for Jesus? I, does watching this show, does it stir my affections for Jesus? Does listening to that, does going there, doing that, hanging with these people, are those things that are stirring and deepening my yearnings and wants for Jesus? Now, let me just apply this real particular to an area that I need it personally applied to my life, social media. I, I don't know what that looks like in your life. If you're like a Facebook person, a, an Instagram person, a your newsfeed sort of a person. Um, but, but we should probably just ask ourselves, should we check social media, whatever that thing is that you kind of go to with your phone, should we check that thing like 37 times a day? Should we do that? Is that a good thing? I remember one time when I was just mindlessly, I don't know what I was looking at, something. I'm just mindlessly going through one of the feeds that I have. And a friend of mine sent me this quote. One of the greatest, he just, like it literally popped up on my text message screen as I'm reading down through something. 
One of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Like, oh, pull the dagger out of the heart. But we need to ask ourselves the question, is checking your Facebook feed 44 times a day, is it sinful? Is your phone sinful? Probably not for, for most of you, depending on what you're checking. Probably not. But here's the second question we have to ask. Is it increasing our desire for Jesus? Answer, I really doubt it. I really doubt it. Now just apply that to everything in your life. I think about the way you wind down at night. Most people wind down with an hour of TV at night. Is that increasing your affections for Jesus? Or are there other things that you could slide into that slot that would fill you up and feed your affections for Jesus? Listen to John Piper, ask a question, and then make an observation. Here's the question. Do you have a hunger for God? Just ask yourself that question. Is there a hunger for God in me? Now, if your answer is no, like a deep, insatiable hunger for God, if your answer is no, listen to the observation. If we don't feel strong desires for the manifestations of the glory of God, it's not because we have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. Now just allow that to just settle over your soul for a moment. Scientists tell us that the universe, the observable universe, is 92 billion light years wide. Now, that is like so gigantic that we don't even have a frame of reference. It's just numbers for us, right? It is just so big that it's, it's incomprehensible. And that's just the observable universe. They know that it goes beyond what they can observe. Now, Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, just connect that together. When you look up in the sky and you see an observable universe that's 92 billion light years wide, that is communicating something to us. That is meant to be a signpost pointing us beyond itself all the way to God, the vastness of God. Like the vastness of the universe is meant to tell us this is how vast God is. And the Bible is saying that vast God is a fountain of life to be enjoyed forever. Now, now, now think about the connection. This is what, this, is what the, this beatitude, beatitude number four, this is what this encouragement, this invitation is. It's beatitude for hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's God inviting us to explore his vastness. I, running over every hill, peering under every rock for things to enjoy of God. God's, God's heart is so vast. Think about what heaven's gonna be like. We're going to spend forever in the vastness of God's heart, never growing bored, making daily discoveries in God that will continually re-wow us. That's the heart of God. And and in this beatitude, Jesus is looking at us and saying, hey, while you're winding down to another hour of TV, just, you know, just stuffing yourself with the small things of this world, just know this. God, that the source of all joy, God, the, the, the vast God of the universe, he's waiting to be explored and enjoyed by you. That, that's the invitation and the encouragement. Come and, and know this vast, joyful God. Come and get him. That, that's the encouragement. Now here's the promise and we're done. The promise. For they shall be satisfied. 
Matthew 5, 6 is God's answer to man's longing. And they shall be satisfied. Thomas Watson used to say it this way. Here in, in this verse, here is a honeycomb dropping into the mouths of the hungry. If there is one thing I know about your soul, it is that your soul is too vast to be satisfied with small things. It is too vast to be satisfied by you gaining another dollar, by you getting a bigger house, by you getting better cars, by you getting that promotion at work, by you accomplishing something at work, by you just fill in the blank of all the things that we kind of do in this life. Your soul is too vast to be satisfied that, by those things. Your soul is so vast that the only hope, and it's, it's designed this way by God, the only hope it ever has of being satisfied is to find the greatest thing in the universe, the, the thing that is the most vast in the universe, namely God himself, and to bring that down into your soul. That is the only hope your soul has of being satisfied. You were made for nothing short of God himself. Augustine, he said it this way. You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Now, I want to end just by giving you a few examples of that happening, of saints finding their rest in God, like God coming down into their souls and making a home inside of them and satisfying them. And I'll just start with Augustine. Augustine had a dramatic conversion story. By the way, he was alive back in the 400s, one of the most influential people in church history. And listen to him describe his conversion. He says it this way. Suddenly it became sweet to me to to be without the sweets of folly. In other words, he's saying, when Christ made me alive and I hungered and thirsted for him, then he satisfied me. Here's what happened. All the sweet follies that I used to love, my, my, my mouth just lost a desire for it. Like my, my taste buds just turned a different way. Like something else overpowered them. The sweetness of God dulled my taste buds for those things, that those lesser joys. Suddenly it became sweet to me to be without the sweets of folly. What I once feared to lose was now a delight to dismiss. Did you know that God could satisfy your heart like that? That all the things we're so terrified of losing, that we find such satisfaction in him that we can look at them all and say, I can live without them. I'd gladly live without them. He goes on, you, O oh God, you turned them out and entered in to take their place, pleasanter than any pleasure. That's how he thought of God. That's how, he, that's how he knew God. God is the most pleasurable thing in the universe. He actually satisfied my soul. That, that's how he experienced God. Uh, here's David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a missionary to Native Americans back in the, uh, the late 1700s. And uh, he died in his late 20s in the home of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards took his journal, published it, and it became an instant Christian classic. And here's the reason. I think the main reason. It is showing people what the interior life of a Christian ought to look like in all of its ups and downs. It shows that. You, you ought to get it and read it sometime. I think it would be really encouraging for you. But I want to read you a couple of excerpts from his journal. Here's one. 
This is on an October morning in his life. In the morning, I felt my soul hungering and thirsting after righteousness. While I was looking on the elements of the Lord's Supper and thinking that Jesus was set forth crucified before me, he goes on to say, my soul was filled with light and love so that I was almost in an ecstasy. I mean, it's like I'm feeling things in this moment that I can't even describe. That's how satisfied I am in God. Here's another one in April. He says, I rose and, I rose and retired early for secret devotions and in prayer. God was pleased to pour indescribable comforts into my soul. Like God just poured thing into, things into my hungry and thirsty soul that I just, I, I don't have words to describe these things he's saying. God was pleased to pour indescribable comforts into my soul that I could do nothing for some time but sit there and say over and over again, Oh, my sweet Savior, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none on earth I desire beside you. If I had a thousand lives to live, my soul would gladly have laid them all down at once to have been with Christ. That's how he knew and experienced God. Do you know what happened to these people? I think what happened is they, they stopped seeing Jesus as a burden to be endured and they started seeing him as a person to be enjoyed, satisfied in. In Matthew 5, 6, church, Jesus is not looking at us and saying, here's my goal for your life, church. I just want you to settle for something. Why don't you do that? No, Jesus is not asking us to settle for anything. He is saying, no, I want you to keep pressing on all the way to the one being great enough to satisfy your soul, namely me. So church, may we press on to that. May we keep going toward that. Amen. Let's pray together. Now I want to give you a moment to just sit and listen to the Spirit of God and Allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be this morning. Maybe for some of us, we are realizing today that we have been dead in our sin. That that's the reason that we've never desired God, wanted God, like yearned for more of Jesus. But, but maybe for some in the room today, God has done the miracle of making your heart alive. And today you are feeling something that you've never felt before. Like, I, I actually want God. I actually, I want to know him. I, the, the deer pants for the water. So my, my heart is panting and desiring God. And here's the beautiful thing for all those who will turn from their sin and yearning after Jesus, throw their life upon his life, death, and resurrection. 
Jesus just stands here with arms open, ready to receive you today, ready to satisfy you today. He stands ready to do that. And for others in the room, we, we're not dead in our sin, but man, have we been sick. Man, have we stuffed our souls full of the small things in this world. So much so that we came in here this morning and we can't even remember the last time we really yearned for God. God stands with arms wide open for us too. For us to bring our coldness for him, asking for Jesus to thaw that by his mercy and grace. That we would bring our hardness, our complacency. Maybe we can just bring to God a want to want him more today. God, just, I, I want to desire you more than anything else. God, help me in that. God, do that in me. Help me, help me want you more. And oh God, would you do that for us? May we be a church marked by a yearning, an insatiable yearning for more of you. D desire, passion, a healthy and hearty appetite. Oh God, would you make us into that? Would you do that? It's by your grace that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.